Good evening. Happy Pride, everyone, and welcome to this special Outbeat Extra, a celebration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall with Making Gay History. I'm Greg Moralia. And I'm Eric Marcus, host of the Making Gay History podcast. The June 1969 riots at New York's Stonewall Inn are often described as the start of the modern LGBTQ civil rights movement. But our history as a community and a movement started way before those explosive summer nights 50 years ago. This year on Outbeat Extra, I'm going to share with you some of the archival interviews I recorded with people who changed the world. Their stories and their work are mostly absent from the history books, but they contributed to the movement that got us to where we are today, in ways you might know about, but probably don't. And their experiences and recollections take my breath away. You're so right, Eric. And we're just so thrilled to be partnering with you to make this history visible for our listeners, especially today, as we celebrate LGBTQ pride all over the world. Eric Marcus is an accomplished author with several gay history books and biographies to his credits. He's the founder of the Making Gay History podcast. So stay with us. The first interview of tonight is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, June 30th, 2019. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of June 30th, 2019. Over the last month, we've reported on LGBTQ pride celebrations and pride organizations that have tried to exclude LGBTQ members of law enforcement from participating in uniform and parades. But the whims of these organizations don't line up with what most LGBTQ Americans really want. News survey conducted by the Whitman Insight Strategies of BuzzFeed showed that LGBTQ Americans want cops and corporations to participate in pride parades by an 8 to 1 margin, a landslide of support that breaks from a vocal faction of protesters. And they also overwhelmingly believe that both kink and family should be on display at pride events. The poll taken by 801 LGBTQ people this month throughout the United States is among the most comprehensive of its type, asking more than 100 questions about gender, sex, politics, family, and discrimination. And from Washington, D.C. this week, the Human Rights Campaign announced that Alfonso David will be the first person of color to lead the veteran LGBT organization, replacing Chad Griffin, who will be stepping down. Born in the U.S., David was raised in Liberia, where his uncle was president. When David was 10, his father was jailed in a military coup, and his uncle was assassinated. The family sought asylum here in the United States, which was granted because David was a U.S. citizen. After graduating from law school, David worked at a law firm in Philadelphia and corporate counsel at a company in California. But following the Supreme Court decision striking down sodomy laws as unconstitutional, David decided to focus on human rights, accepting a position at Lambda Legal in their defense department. While the organization has been criticized for its lack of diversity and history of transgender exclusion, David's selection seems to indicate the group is finally catching up with the challenges facing the modern queer movement outside of marriage equality. And here locally in San Francisco, the famed Castro neighborhood will soon be declared as the city's third LGBTQ cultural district. The Board of Supervisors unanimously approved the designation for the neighborhood at its June 25th meeting, and Mayor London Breed is expected to sign it into law when it reaches her desk in July after the board votes a second time. The other LGBTQ districts are the Tenderloin, focused primarily on the transgender community, and South of Market, created to preserve the area's leather culture. 
Signage went up last weekend to demarcate the boundaries of the Compton Cafeteria Transgender Cultural District, while construction began this month on the Eagle Plaza on 12th Street, set to become a focal point for the Leather District when it opens later this year. The Castro LGBT District has been talked about for years, with efforts to establish it formally launched in February last year. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the LGBT news headlines we're following, go to our website at OutbeatNews.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. I'm Eric Marcus. Welcome to the second season of Making Gay History. In this episode, you'll meet two very different heroes of the LGBTQ civil rights movement, people I'd never expected to find in the same room. Beginning in the early 1960s, Randy Wicker promoted the then-radical idea that homosexuals should be accepted because they were just like everyone else. Randy led the first public protest against anti-gay discrimination in 1964, dressed in a coat and tie. Marsha P. Johnson was Randy's public relations nightmare, a self-described drag queen hustler with a long arrest record and a history of mental health issues, who was best known for her role in the 1969 Stonewall Uprising. My plan was to interview Randy at his Art Deco lamp shop, just a few blocks west of the Stonewall Inn. But Randy had other ideas. He suggested we go to his place across the Hudson River in Hoboken, New Jersey, where I could talk with Marsha as well. I had no idea they were roommates. When we get to Randy's modest apartment, Marsha's in the kitchen making dinner. After a few minutes, she walks into the living room. She drapes herself in a chair like a cat in slow motion and absentmindedly starts sorting through her shoulder bag. A frosted wig comes to the surface and then disappears and then comes back to the surface again. Before I can get the wires to the lapel mics untangled, Randy is talking a mile a minute. He's throwing off so much nervous energy that I wish to myself they'd offered me something stronger to drink than water. I ask them both to sit still for a second so I can clip the mics to their collars. I go back to my chair, reach across to the cocktail table to my tape recorder, and press record. Marsha's the only one, she, she's the only one everyone agrees was at the Stonewall riots. There were a lot of other people, but everyone agrees that Marsha was there, so... The way I, I winded up being at Stonewall that night, I was having a party uptown, and we were all out there, and Miss Sylvia and Rivera and them were over in the park having a cocktail. I was uptown, and I didn't get downtown until about 2 o'clock, because when I got downtown, the place was already on fire, and it was a raid already. The riots had already started, and they said the police went in there and set the place on fire. They said the police set it on fire, because they, they originally wanted the Stonewall to close, so they had several raids. And there was this uh, Tiffany and... Oh, this other drag queen that used to work there in the coat check room, and then they had all these bartenders. And the night before the Stonewall riots started, before they closed the bar, 
We were all there, and we all had lined up against the wall, and they were all searching us. The police were? Yeah, they searched every single body that came there, because uh, the place was supposed to be closed, and they opened anyway. Because every time the police came, what they would do, they would take the money from the coat check room and take the money from the bar. So if they heard the police were coming, they would take all the money and hide it up under the bar in these boxes out of the register and you know and sometimes it would hide like under the floor or something so, they, so when they got it right when the police got in all they got was the bartender's tips who went to the stone wall well uh at first it was just a gay men's bar mm -hmm. and they didn't allow no uh women in and then they start allowing women in and then they let the drag queens in mm -hmm. i was one of the first drag queens to go to that place because we when we first heard about this, and then they had these drag queens working there. They didn't never arrest anybody at the Stonewall. All they did was line us up and tell us to get out. Were you one of those uh, that got in the chorus lines and kicked their heels up at the police? Like, like uh, Ziegfeld Folly Girls or Rockettes? Oh, no. No, we were too busy throwing over cars and screaming in the middle of the street because we were so upset because they closed that place. What were you screaming in the street? Huh? What did you say to the police? We just were saying no more police brutality and oh, we had enough of uh, police harassment in the village and other places. Oh, there was a lot of little chants we used to do in those days. Were you at, Stone, at Stonewall then as well? Did you know Marsha? No, no, I met Marsha. Marsha moved in here about eight years ago. I, well, I had met Marsha in 1973 as an advocate reporter. The GAA people had freed her. Yeah, it was, it was, they had locked up our gay sister, Marsha Johnson, but they went into the mental hospital and they snuck her out in an elevator and they ran out the door. Now, the reason they, she was in the mental hospital is she took LSD and was sitting in the middle of either Houston Street or it wasn't pulling the sun. Well, whatever. It was, what, what do you call that? Uh, mescaline? No. What's that other fear stuff? Belladonna? Uh-uh. Purple passion or something. <laughs> but anyway, she was sitting in the middle, like, like pulling the sun to the earth. But fortunately, before the world ended and the sun hit the earth, the paddy wagon from Bellevue came and took mm -hmm. Marsha away to the mental ward. And that's how she ended up getting on SSI as a mental case. Uh -huh. Because they obviously saw, you know, she had a history of prostitution going back to 62. And I had met Marsha. I mean, when I did this article, this story, I, and my impression of Marsha was that she was sweet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a little bit spacey. So when this boy I met at the gate and he said, I said, would you ever go to the village? Oh, yeah, I go to the village. I run around with Marsha. I mean, he was a nice white boy. And I said, I don't know that, you know, Marsha's the kind of person that, you know, you should really be hanging out with. But to make a long story, this boy really became like my adopted son. But he moved in, I guess, in January. And he one, it was 10 degrees. And he said, you know, he said, Marsha, you know, she's out there. You know, she doesn't have anywhere to sleep. You know, she didn't mind sleeping on the floor. Couldn't she come home and sleep on the rug? And I said, Willie, I said, are you absolutely sure she's not going to rip us off? You know, I mean, I don't, you know. And he said, I, I know, no, she won't rip us off. Well, Marsha came in, I guess, in 79 or 80, began sleeping on the rug here. You know, I mean, I got to know her and like her, and she became one of my, I'm a big Marsha fan now. But it was so funny because, I mean, I counseled Willie. Marsha wasn't the right. kind of person you know you want to get involved with and run around with you know and you went together now for eight years yeah yeah you know, were there lots of people hurt at the stonewall that night at the uh during the riots they weren't hurt at the stonewall 
they were hurt on the streets outside of the Stonewall because people were throwing bottles and the police were out there with those clubs and uh-huh. things and the helmets on, the riot helmets. Were you afraid of being arrested? Oh, no, because I've been going to jail for uh, like 10 years before the Stonewall I was going to jail because I was, I was originally up on 42nd Street. And every time we go, you know, like going out to hustle all the time, they would just get us and tell us we were under arrest. Mm-hmm. Drag queen ho- hooker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they say all use drag queens under under arrest. So we start, you know, it was just for wearing a little bit of makeup down Forty Second Street. Who are the kinds of people you met up at Forty Second Street when you were hustling up there? Oh, this was all these queens uh-huh. from from Harlem, from the Bronx. A lot of them are dead now. I mean, I hardly ever see anybody from those days. But these were like queens from the Bronx and Brooklyn, from New Jersey, where I'm from. I'm from Elizabeth, New Jersey. See, I, 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 Stonewall, I don't want, I shouldn't start on this note, but it puts me in the worst light because by the time Stonewall happened, I was running my button shop in East Village. And for all the years of Mattachine, and you see the pictures of me on TV, I'm wearing a suit and tie, and I had spent 10 years of my life going around telling people homosexuals look just like everybody else. We didn't all wear makeup and wear dresses and have false set of voices among us kids and were communists and all this. And all of a sudden, Stonewall broke out, and there were reports in the press of chorus lines of queens kicking up their heels at the cops like rockets you know we are the stonewall girls and you know and this i thought you know it's like jesse jackson used to say uh rocks through windows don't open doors i felt this i was horrified i mean the last thing to me that i thought at the time they were setting back the gang liberation movement 20 years because, I mean, all these TV shows and all this work that we had done to try to establish legitimacy of the gay movement, that they were, we were nice middle-class people like everybody else and, you know, adjusted and all that. And suddenly there was all this, what I considered, riffraff. And I gave a speech. I was asked to speak. I, I was asked to, to speak at the Electric Circus, which was a major... Which was a major... You think so? Okay, you were saying about Stonewall. Yeah, I was saying I was running my uh, shop in East Village, the button shop, the big hippie shop. And when this happened, I was horrified because it was civil disorder. Somewhere I saw a picture from Stonewall, and it had a big sign-up from the Mattachine Society, which was one of my base groups, who said the Mattachine Society asked citizens to obey the police, to not obey the police, but to respect law and order, to act in a lawful manner. In other words, the Mattachine itself was basically a conservative organization. And they had a, they asked me to speak at the electric circus. And I got up and said that I did not think that the way to win public acceptance was to go out and form chorus lines of drag queens kicking your feet up at the police. And I was just beginning to speak, and one of the bouncers at the electric circuits found out that 
it was a gay thing that the guy up there talking was gay and somebody standing next to him he said to them are you one of them and the guy said yes and he began beating the hell out of him and this riot broke out in the electric circus and I remember driving him home because the kid was only about 21 or 22 years old and he said all I know is that I've been in this movement for three days and I've been beaten up three times I mean he had a black eye and you know a puffed up face I mean oh, no serious terrible. damage but but the thing was that, that you were dealing with a new thing, and it shows that what my generation did, we built the ideology. You know, are we sick, aren't we sick? What are the scientific facts? How have we been brainwashed by society? We put together like, you know, Lenin, I mean, Karl Marx wrote the book. That's what we did. But it literally took Stonewall, and here I was considered the first militant and a visionary leader of the gay movement, did not even realize when the revolution, if you want to call it this, this thing that I thought would never happen, that a small nuclei of people would become a mass social movement was occurring, I was against it. Now, I'm very happy Stonewall happened. I'm very happy the way things worked out. Now, you mentioned an organization that, that Marshall, that you were involved with. What was the name? Street, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries with Miss Sylvia Rivera. Star. What, what, uh, was, what was that group about? What was it for? Uh, it was a group for transvestites. It was a bunch men of men and women transvestites. Mm -hmm. It was a bunch of flaky stuff transvestites but, living in a hovel in a slum somewhere, calling themselves revolutionaries. That's what it was, in my opinion. Now, Marsha has a different idea. What's your opinion? <laughs> Street transvestite action revolutionaries started out as a very good group. It was uh, after Stonewall they started. They started at GAA. Mama Jean DeVente, who used to be the marshal for all the parades, she was the one that talked Sylvia and Rivera into leaving GAA, because Sylvia Rivera, who was the president of STAR, was a member of GAA, and started a group of her own. And so she started uh, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, and she asked me would I come and be the vice president of that organization. You know, they had an apartment, they didn't have the money to keep up the rent, and they began fighting over who was using drugs, or who was paying rent, or who was taking whose makeup, and I mean, it got to be pretty, pretty low life and pretty ugly. No, the building was owned by Michael Umbers, who was in jail. And then Michael Umbers, when he went to jail, the city took over the building and had everybody thrown out. Huh. But originally, rent was, the rent was uh, paid to Michael Umbers, who went to jail, and Bubbles Rose Lee, Bubbles Rose Lee, who was the secretary of the star. <laughs> she had all kinds of things mobating around, around the building and stuff, you know. And so the city just came and closed the building down. The dream of Star House was to provide a safe place for street kids. But those kids were just a little younger than Marsha and Sylvia, who were in their early 20s and still had to hustle to survive. Marsha died in July 1992. Her body was found floating in the Hudson River near the piers on the western edge of Greenwich Village. She was 46. The New York City medical examiner ruled her death a suicide, but Marsha's friends believed she was beaten to death or accidentally fell in the river. They lobbied for a new investigation, and 20 years after Marsha's death, the district attorney's office agreed to reopen the case. To learn more about Marsha P. Johnson and Randy Wicker, please visit makinggayhistory.com. That's where you can listen to all our previous episodes and also find photos and really interesting background information on each of the people we feature. Music.
Marsha P. Johnson is one of the people who took part in the riots that today we celebrate and remember with pride. Now, another LGBT hero who has a link to pride is Jean Manford. She marched in the parade a few years after the Stonewall riots in support of her gay son, Morty. And from that event, Jean Manford founded an organization called PFLAG. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. For this episode, we've dug into our stack of cassette tapes for a story that dates back to the early 1970s. It's about Jean Manford and her son, Morty. They founded a group for parents of gay people in 1973. Today, it's an international organization called PFLAG. Originally, that stood for Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. It's got 400 chapters across the country. By the time I came out to my mom in 1977, I knew about PFLAG. So when my mom told me that she wanted me to see a psychiatrist, I told her I'd go if she went to a PFLAG meeting. She said no. I said no. Big mistake. We both would have been better off. But 13 years later, my mother went to her first PFLAG meeting. My mom became such an activist that I had to remind her that I was the gay one, that this was my issue. I put a photo of my mom on makinggayhistory.com from the 1993 Gay March on Washington, and you'll see she paid no attention to me. Jean and Morty's story starts with a letter. I wish you could hear this story from the beginning, but I screwed up the audio. I thought I'd be interviewing Jean Manford by herself, but when I got to her house, it turned out that Morty was there too, so I interviewed them together. But I hadn't done a double interview before. They were already partway through telling me about how Jean came to write a letter to a New York City newspaper about her gay son when I realized there was a problem with the sound. And that's where we'll pick up the story. So, the context. 1972, Morty was 21. He'd gone to a protest against the New York Daily News, which had published a very offensive editorial calling gay people fairies, nances, swishes, fags, and lezies. There are some words there that I hadn't heard before used against gay people. At the protest, Morty got kicked out of him by the president of the New York City Firemen's Union, who was never charged. Several protesters wound up in the hospital, including Morty. You can read all about the protest in our show notes on makinggayhistory.com. So it's 17 years later, and I'm sitting with Jean and Morty at the dining room table of the Manford family home in Flushing, Queens. Jean is a widow, and Morty has moved home to live with his mom. He's an assistant New York State Attorney General. Jean is very soft-spoken. Her face is framed by a halo of silver hair. Morty is not soft-spoken. He's handsome, and his thick curly hair is chestnut brown. I have no idea where I put the microphone, but I definitely pressed record. Interview with Gene Manford and Morty Manford on Saturday, May 13th, 1989. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Location is the Manford home in Queens, New York. Tape one, side one. I had a call from the hospital, and, and then I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Post. Did you have any invitation about writing this no, letter? No, I didn't. I mean, I was furious. Mm-hmm. Why um, were you furious? What infuriated what, what right had they got to assault my son and others, and uh, why didn't the police protect them? I guess it was the first time a mother ever sat down and said, yes, I have a homosexual child. Were you hesitant at all about saying no. that? No, I didn't even think about it. And I was amazed that Morty told me that it received such wide notice and that he had had so many calls at the time from people and, you know, about it. What did you think of your mom? I thought she was terrific. It seemed to me 
on one level to be very natural kind of reaction and concern and involvement for a parent. What I thought was extraordinary was that other people weren't doing the same at that time. What made your mother different? She's a unique person. I've always felt that Morty was a very special person and uh, I wasn't going to let anybody walk over him. Well, I mean, a lot of parents who knew their gay children were gay, uh, felt their families were very important to them. question is what about our family? I would have to say that we were always very open thinkers. This was an area that they really didn't understand. There was a lot of ignorance, but they were willing to consider what are the prejudices that we're taught and are they in fact uh, founded in any reality or are they pure prejudice. We'd all learned a great lesson from the black civil rights movement of the early uh, 60s and the women's movement, and I think my parents agreed that uh, the principles of civil rights for blacks and for women were just demands, and this was simply bringing into the discussion a new civil rights perspective. How do we get then from this first letter to what has now become a national, international federation of them? Did you have any idea well, at then, that time that this could come to pass, that you would wind up being in such a public position? Because you seem like a very private time. person. Not at that time, but yes, I, I'm very shy, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, I would not have tried to. I've never belonged to organizations. I never tried to be to do anything. So it, it just happened, you know. Now, I was asked to be on a television show in Boston. and Well, the three of us yeah. went. We went out to Cincinnati. Uh, at one point, my parents appeared on a, a TV show in New Detroit. Orleans. Well, I would think five times in Boston, Cleveland, two or three times, Detroit. Every talk show in uh, New York City. Because we were the only people who were willing to go public. We felt that it was a way of educating the public, of you know, making people understand. And besides that, when I did march with Morty, was it 72? Did you ask him not to march? Yeah. You yeah. came to me and you said, uh, you know, he said, March, will you march with us? I said to him, I will march if you let me carry a sign. Parents of gays unite in support for our children. How did people react to you then against me? They screamed, they yelled, they ran over and kissed me. Well, will you talk to my mother? Uh, wow, my mother saw me here, you know, and... They, they just couldn't believe that uh, a parent would do that. It was unbelievable. I had been in the previous year's march also, and the outpouring of emotion from our own community was overwhelming. Nobody got the loud uh, emotional cheers that she did. They were fearful of telling parents. Most of them wouldn't tell, and many had been rejected because the parents knew. I guess they just didn't feel that any parent could be supportive of a gay child. The symbolic presence that my mother provided was a sign of great hope that parents can be supportive, that the people we're closest to, whom we love the most, need not be 
our enemies, can be our supporters. As Morty and I walked along during that first march, so many people said, talk to my parents, and there were phone calls all day long. That phone was ringing. So that's when we decided, though, during the march, to start something, some kind of an organization. Yes. What kind of organization did you have in mind? An organization for parents. To talk to each other, to know that you're not the only one, and that each because each person thinks, oh, it, I'm the only one who has a child who is homosexual, and nobody was willing to let anyone else know about it, to get together and talk to people, to say, look, there's nothing wrong with them. And an organization yeah. which would be supportive of the struggle for gay liberation. The parents' group was a bridge between the gay community and the straight community. How so? How, the heterosexual how, community. How, how did you see it doing that? Well, I think the very first, when we did finally have the meeting, I think I may have voiced someday... You know, uh, we will fight for the rights and uh, of our children. We will be become political. We will make a, have a national organization. I remember thinking that at the very beginning. Uh, but the the immediate thing was to talk to parents and help them come to terms with the fact that they have a gay child and there was nothing to be ashamed of, nothing wrong with it. He or she was no different than anybody else. Did you get calls regularly at home from people? There were so many and so many letters. They were upset. They had this child was homosexual and I, you know, told them to come to the meeting and talk. At the meetings they would tell me how much I had helped them on the phone. It was not so much what my mother said but that she said it. I remember her many times saying there's nothing wrong with your son being gay or your daughter being lesbian. You know, we've been taught by society that there's something wrong, and society has been wrong. This is a civil rights issue. People had never heard this before, and to hear it from another parent appear, uh, they expected to uh, spend the phone conversation in tears with someone at the other end saying, now, now, dearie. But that's not what they got, it, and I think the effect was to make them stop a minute. You don't, don't believe just everything you're told by society and that society could be wrong. Police were still uh, raiding bars where gays were. Gays had no job protection in any city in this country whatsoever. There was still the stigma of being gay. They used to be fond of saying that the churches said we were sinners and the psychiatrists said we were sick. Capitalists uh, said we were subversive. Communists said we were immoral. And many gays also accepted those prejudices, if only tacitly. There was no one to say otherwise. There was no pro-gay propaganda. The support wasn't out there. I think the emergence of the parents' group at this time provided a much-needed pro-gay propaganda. We had to reach our own and then reach the world. The general public will listen to parents in a different way than they will listen to advocates What has your mother, mother been able to do that you weren't able to do? To speak to the, a lot of bigots and get through on a level that mere political or social discussion wouldn't accomplish. A lot of people will look at parents and they can identify with parents. 
they look at me and they say, there's a gay person, I'm not like him, and uh, therefore they're not listening to what I'm saying, but they would say, I have a mother and father too, let us understand what they're saying. On that level, I think they've been able to reach a lot of people uh, we wouldn't have been able to reach alone. So you've changed lives all over this country, really, through your work. I think at one time you told me my, my picture was over a bar in Brazil, someone told you. <laughs> a gay bar. Yeah. And again, somebody came back from Brazil and said they were in a bar and they saw my mother's picture on the wall, a big uh, mural uh, with her marching. Uh -huh. And someone told, said there was an article in, was it the London Economist? So, I mean, it was in something French, too, I think, you know, about the group. So uh, we were in Kinsey, and I know my niece was taking a course in college, and she turned and she said, oh, that's my uncle and aunt. You know? uh, so we never knew when, <laughs> what made us famous or infamous. So in your own way, you were a quiet revolutionary to these people. Well, I made the revolutionary calendar. <laughs> what is the revolutionary calendar? There was a calendar that somebody published, which I picked up over on St. Mark's Place, and it had uh, for each month a picture of some occasion. When Mao Zedong's birthday was, there was a picture of Mao. There was, I think, a picture of Dr. Martin Luther King uh, during um, his birthday oh, in the no. month. And for June, guess who the well, calendar girl before was? You, before you turned to June, you said this is, not a, this is not a true revolutionary calendar unless it talks about the gay march, about, the gay, about gays. And when you turned the page, there you saw my picture. <laughs> Were you surprised? Sure I was. I considered myself such a traditional person that I didn't even cross the street against the light. <laughs> <laughs>
She wanted Danny to help her start a Queen's chapter of PFLAG. And where is Danny, the elementary school teacher now? He got himself elected to the New York City Council, and he chairs the Council's Committee on Education. I met with Danny recently, and he told me that he knew my mom. Turns out that my mom helped Danny and Jean start the Queen's PFLAG chapter. I had no idea. My mom's been dead for 12 years. I wish I could tell her how proud I was of her. Jean spent the last years of her life with her daughter, Suzanne, and her husband just outside San Francisco. She died in 2013. She was 92. She outlived her golden boy by three decades. One month after Jean died, President Obama awarded her with the 2012 Presidential Citizens Medal, which recognizes citizens of the United States who have performed exemplary deeds of service for their country or their fellow citizens. Jean's daughter accepted the award at the White House ceremony in her mother's honor. To see a photo of that ceremony and to learn more about Jean, Morty, and PFLAG, please visit our website at makinggayhistory.com. That's where you'll also find the iconic 1972 photo of Jean carrying her Parents of Gays sign. If you're just joining us, you're listening to KRCBFM Radio 91 and an outbeat extra, our celebration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall with Making Gay History. I'm Greg Moralia. And I'm Eric Marcus. Eric, you know, it's really amazing as I listen to these stories, how many connections there are to the Bay Area and California. And here's another one. When I think of Herb Donaldson and Evander Smith, I think of delicious homemade pie. That's because I interviewed the two longtime friends in Evander's San Francisco kitchen over generous slices of pecan pie. I first read about Herb and Evander when I was researching the January 1st, 1965 costume ball at San Francisco's California Hall. It's sometimes called the West Coast Stonewall because it wound up being a huge and very public confrontation with that city's police department. The ball was a fundraising event for a new organization called the Council on Religion and the Homosexual, or CRH. It brought together progressive ministers and local gay rights groups with the goal of educating the city's religious communities about discrimination and anti-gay violence. Herb Donaldson and Evander Smith were among the CRH founders. Herb and Evander met on a San Francisco beach in 1962, and the two young attorneys became fast friends. Herb had a private practice, Evander had a corporate job, but secretly helped Herb with gay cases on the side. Coincidentally, both had life partners named Jim. You'll hear me refer to Herb's lover in the interview, which is what we called life partners back in the late 1980s. Some quick background on the two men. Herb Donaldson was born in West Virginia in 1927. When Herb was a year and a half old, his father was killed in a mining accident, and his mother moved him and his two brothers to Wisconsin to be near family. He served eight years in the Navy and then earned his law degree at Stanford. Evander was born in Georgia in 1922 and raised in Alabama. His father was a minister of Scottish descent and his mother was Native American. After law school, he went to Anchorage, Alaska and eventually settled in San Francisco. So here's the scene. It's a perfect San Francisco evening and the sun has just set when I pull into the driveway of Evander's huge house. It's a beautifully kept beige stucco two-story colonial in the city's gorgeous Forest Hill neighborhood. I'm 15 minutes late, so I dash up the steps of the long front walk. I hate being late. Evander greets me at the door with the kind of warmth I think of as Southern hospitality, and he brushes aside my apologies. He hadn't even noticed, he says, although I'm not so sure I believe him. Evander leads me through the house to the expansive kitchen where Herb is waiting. Herb has a full head of white hair and striking blue eyes. 
We take our seats around a three-sided island, and while I set up my equipment, Evander asks if I'd like to have some pie. I don't object. And once the pie is served, and we're two or three bites in, I clip the mics to Herb and Evander's dress shirts, and I press record. Interview with Evander Smith and Herb Donaldson, Thursday, September 21st, 1989. Location is the home of Evander Smith in San Francisco, California. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one. Uh, Evander, E-V-A-N-D-E-R, Smith. Herbert, H-E-R-B-E-R-T, Donaldson, D-O-N-A-L-D-S-O-N. Now, how did you come to be involved with with this this infamous... uh, CRH dance. Mm-hmm. There was a group of us who formed the CRH. Right. Clay Carwell, Chuck, Chuck Lewis, Lewis uh, uh, Mac, McVean, uh, Ted McElvaney, uh, Louis Durham, yes. Cecil Williams. I uh, forget Cecil. Oh, absolutely mm-hmm. not Cecil Williams. Uh, Bob uh, Cromie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that nucleus. Bob Burns, who was one of the Methodists. And Chuck Lewis. Did mm-hmm. we name him? And then the other gay organizations, and actually there were half a dozen of them a lot of them were just simply on paper though uh, uh, and they decided they were going to have a fundraiser for the CRH to, in other words to get it started and so they were going to have it was going to be a Mardi Gras on New Year's night right. so it would be January 1st yeah the night right. of January 1st mm-hmm. <clears throat> because everyone wanted to do it just right Evander and I were involved in meeting with the police to make sure that there wouldn't be any police interference. Because at that time, the police took the position that the only time you could dress up in drag was on Halloween. And this was going to be a gala affair in which if you wanted to go in drag, you could. And it wasn't Halloween. It wasn't Halloween. (laughs) And then the police went back on their word. But they told us in advance that they had changed their minds. And and you said you got a phone call from Hal and Carl? We, we went down to see Hal and Don, and they were all shook up. They said that the cops had been there, and I gave them an ultimatum that they were to get this message out to these queer ministers, as they referred to them, ministers who loved queers. If they weren't queer themselves, they were queer lovers. They were going to get rid of uh, all these people by arresting them. And the police had blocked off the intersections all around California Hall. Right. And they were, had their bikes, uh, motorcycles, and also had the black Mariahs or station paddy wagons, whatever they're called. And they had their helmets, the right gear. They would not have been even better prepared if they had gone there with the gangsters with machine guns to fight them. And they had stated previously uh, that they were going to make mass arrest, and then it did, as Herbert pointed out, come out at our trial, that they had 200 placards printed up, numbers ready for that many arrests. When they told you that they were planning this, what, what did you do? All we could do is to then see if they were going to uh, go through with their threats. So what actually happened then that night? We were the attorneys there at the door, and we were there to to make sure that everything was on the up and up so that there couldn't be any reason to make any arrests. And then they they started coming in, making inspections. They were the plainclothes police. They would come in. I remember there was a fire inspection. 
That's right. There was, a, there was a, several. There was a health yeah. inspection. Right. And I think it was about the fourth inspection we just said. Where we said that's enough inspection. That we said, no. If you want to come in. And Either give us your ticket or the search warrant. And it, was, it, was, it really was completely unplanned. They didn't know what to do, and we didn't know what to do. <laughs> were, you, were you standing facing each other? Or? Yes, we were frightened. We were just standing there, and they were standing there, because, you know, they didn't know what to do either. They didn't. They didn't believe that we would stand them off. The hallway in that building is about as wide as this kitchen is wide, okay? And Herbert and I were standing uh, abreast with each other and literally leaning to each other, because I think we were both so nervous that we would have fallen down and we hadn't had someone to lean on. To my right, you could run a motorcycle through. And to Herbert's left, you would have been able to run a motorcycle and, and through. And they could have gone right past us, and except they, they didn't know what they, they were. Right, they, were. They were afraid of us, too. <laughs> right. Then all of a sudden, there were a whole bunch of police in uniform came in. I, I thought that, you know, when police arrested you, they said, you're under arrest. And I just... And I, they never did and they, and they, they grabbed me, one on each side, and I said, am I under arrest? And what a silly question. Am I under arrest? They were haul, and they'd already hauled you out to the paddy wagon. <laughs> and then they put us in jail. They sure as the hell did. But for a while, they they, they, they really they didn't, still didn't quite know what, know what to, to do. do. Because we would, I mean, we could get out, we could use the telephone to call. <laughs> anyway, but so then, uh, did we or did, did, did Malcolm call Glickfeld for us? No, we actually called him from the, the jail. You called him from the jail. Judge Glickfeld. Yeah. yeah. Judge Bernard Gipper. Insane, yeah. but a doll in many ways. Because because he ordered us released on our own recognizance. Then and anything there. further. But we had to go over and be booked. We had to go first. over and be booked. And after we got out, Herbert said to me, that booking officer that takes your photographs and fingerprints and so forth paid you a real compliment. And I thought, well, gee, did he want to maybe have a date with me or what? And I said, well, what kind of compliment did he pay me? And he says, well, he told me that uh, you were the nicest American Indian he'd ever met. And they don't get many American Indians in here that are nice. Because he'd, he'd given his uh, nationality as American Indian. Right. right. Well, I, and I always put that down. And he said you were the nicest American Indian yeah. he'd ever met. <laughs> because some of the Indians that he sees in the booking process, you know, the poor guys are drunk. And that's, that's uh -huh. a bad scene, uh -huh. you know. Then we went back. Well, somebody took us back over there. And the place was in chaos. So this was later in the evening. Yeah, yes. later in the evening. And uh, it was a wake. It was like a wake. What was going on? What do you mean by it was in chaos? I mean, the, so they the, had the police were walking in and out across the dance floor. I mean, like they'd taken over the place. They had. They yeah. had taken it over. It, they had completely uh, cleared and then, the then And some of, some of the people were just terrified, especially the school teachers. I remember this couple of women who were school teachers, and they, were, they, had to be, they wanted to be sneaked out the back way so that... Because they were taking pictures of everybody as they left. Oh, yeah, they continued, they continued that. They didn't make any more arrests. Everybody who was coming and who was leaving. They didn't make any more arrests, but they did continue to say to make the Well, they did arrest those two guys who were, who were standing on chairs to look at something, remember? Yeah, I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what happened to them. Well, we stopped. represented them and they were convicted. <laughs> what were they convicted for? Lewd conduct. Two guys at the dance. Yes, uh huh. Because the police, the police, they had to show that all this police had been legitimate. Hey, yeah, uh, so they charged these guys with fondling each other. They hadn't been fondling each other, and Evander represented one, and I represented the other. And when the jury came in, 
Judge Lazarus said, he said, you know, I never expected that. He didn't think they were going to be convicted. And then he said, well, they've suffered enough. I'll, I'll yeah, I remember it, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you see the tragic life there? Because those poor uh, guys... They didn't do anything. They have to put down that I was arrested at a lewd uh, mm -hmm. dance, performing a lewd... Uh, Act well, with that time, man. 647A was registrable. Remember, under yes, you know, indeed, there are many people. So they couldn't be hired by the federal government. They could not. Oh, be no. No. oh no, 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 absolutely not. And if they had had a credential, it would have been taken would, away. It would become. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, they'd have absolutely. proceedings taken away. Right. Sometimes, <clears throat> Evander and I will talk, and the kids coming up now, they they can't. I tell you, they can't enjoy their freedom as much as we have because they take it for granted. <laughs> That it was always like this, that they could walk arm in arm and kiss on the street and so forth. And uh, I mean, I've represented several couples who were arrested for having a hand on the other's knee in a bar. I mean, something as innocent as that. Were you frightened at any point when you were arrested? I mean, this was not something you did routinely. No, uh, I mean, what happens is circumstances just carry you along. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you, when we went home, Oh, Jim and I, we went to bed, and I, I was so touched because he said, oh, I'm so proud of you. Because I was really feeling kind of low, because I thought, I mean, there goes my legal career. This is yeah. Junior Lover. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Poor Evander was fired from his job. I got up early the next morning, went down to uh, get the uh, Chronicle. And of course they had our names. And there it was on the front names page. Names and addresses. And I was just sick. And so the papers... Um, in all references, have always put a demeaning attitude toward people who are gay. And uh, this now was reflected in this uh, biased article that they wrote about the dance, you see. And uh, when I went to work after having been arrested, boy, it just my own secretary, nobody would have anything to do with me. I knew something was wrong. So finally I was given a formal letter on Wednesday and asked not to come back until Friday. So I then thought, well, there is nothing short of a total earthquake to sink the city that will keep me from being fired come noon Friday. Therefore, you know, I think I'll go out with my self-respect. So I called Cecil Williams up, and I said, Now, I don't expect you to do anything or say anything, and I don't want you to think I'm using you in a bad sense, but Cecil, I'm using you for the same purpose that people use a condom rubber for. I'm just going to use you for show. And he said, do you want me to pick you up or do you want to pick me up? I, we got down there and uh, they were shocked, to say the least. So they, they were shocked by what? By the fact that I had brought someone with me. But when they saw that I had this black man with me, <laughs> and, and he, I asked him also to wear his Roman garb, so he had his uh, uh, Roman collar on. Mm -hmm. They tried to excuse the reverend. They uh, said, Reverend, this is a personal matter. Would you please excuse us? I said, if he does, I leave too. You know, I can be very effective on my feet. So uh, I, I took this show away from them. So the air must have been thick in the room. <laughs> Everybody was frightened. Uh -huh.
in a courtroom, I'm not frightened, but I was frightened then because... Well, sure, there goes your security. Yeah, I was just going to say my economic security was at stake. It was the greatest thing they ever did for me. I'm, I don't look back. I was never sad about it. I went home and faced up to reality with Jim and explained to him, look, for Christ's sakes, I'm a member of the bar. Uh, you know, I can make a living. I didn't have a job when I was born. But we, uh, Eric, we sued Herbert and I. We sued the city and county. They knew mm. that we had a good case. At our criminal trial, we must have had 25 of the prominent criminal lawyers in town right. listed on as of counsel. I mean, you had the ministers, you had the Civil Liberties Union uh, representing us, and... Uh, and those, those ministers now and their wives would dress up to their Sunday go-to-church clothes. Uh, Oh, they would, the cars. Yes, and they would come and sit, you see, in oh, the right. audience. At the trial. This was so important that the prospective jurors and the jury itself see the support. They realize that, look, there must be something worthwhile here. The police, the police have got some legitimate people in here. The, the defendants, you mean? Or the, the police? Well, the police had some legitimate people ensnarled into their traps, what mm -hmm. I meant to imply. Do you have any regrets about that dance, about being arrested? None whatsoever. No, it was actually, it was, a, it was a, one of the peak experiences. I mean, sometimes peak experiences, you experience them afterward, but uh, but it, it was. You're right. You're right. Now, having agreed to that, and I wholeheartedly do, and that arrest has affected me Materially, uh, I've never been one to lead the parade. It exacerbated my feeling of insecurity and being less worthy than I think people should be able to be. Herbert, it was like water off a duck's back mm -hmm. for him. Now, what was the, the significance of the dance? Uh, it was the... Uh, no, it was a significant. Boy, it galvanized the gay community into action. Absolutely. Boy, it... it, it mm. One of the things that was really humorous is that the police made this estimate there were 70,000 homosexuals in the city. No, there weren't. But when they advertise all over the... I mean, when it's carried on the wire service that there are 70,000... You've got 70,000 others out in the country who want to come and join that 70,000 uh, here. That's what the wire service has carried on this Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that, you know, San Francisco, the police estimate the population was 70,000. Uh, has it stopped growing yet? That's right. <laughs> I mean, we're still coming. <laughs> so you, there was an influx of... Of course, yes. And uh, this, I honestly think that it was the match that started the mm. Renaissance of awakening, if you will. So Stonewall, which happened in New York, really was quite late. Yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. uh, because this, this was as much a confrontation as... as it, it, it didn't have the, some of the violent overtones, but, but we stood up uh, and, uh, and were counted.
In addition to all the attention the New Year's Day confrontation got in the press locally and around the country, the San Francisco Police Department did something that no police department had ever done before. They appointed a liaison to the gay community. That was in 1965, four years before the Stonewall Uprising. 18 years to the day after Herb Donaldson was arrested at California Hall, he was sworn in as a San Francisco Municipal Court judge. Governor Jerry Brown had offered Herb an appointment to the Superior Court, but as Herb explained to me back in 1989, he told the governor that he would rather be on the Municipal Court because that's where you see all the young lawyers. He said, that's where you can help them get their trial experience. That's where you see the little guy get hauled into court. That's where you get the best opportunity to do something. Herb was the first openly gay man to serve as a municipal court judge in the state of California. Herb Donaldson died on December 5th, 2008. He was 81 years old. Evander Smith kept a very low profile for the rest of his life, but he wasn't forgotten. Not long before I interviewed him, he had gone for his annual physical. And as Evander told me, his internist said to him, and I quote, I was a medical student at Vanderbilt when I heard the radio report of the dance in San Francisco. You have no idea how good that made me feel. You were a part of it, and I really appreciate that. Evander Smith died on December 6, 2005. He was 83. To learn more about Evander and Herb and the 1965 New Year's Day Ball at California Hall, go to makinggayhistory.com. You'll find information, photos, and links to additional resources. That's also where you can listen to all our previous episodes and sign up for our newsletter. Making Gay History is a team effort, so I've got a few people to thank, starting with our executive producer, Sarah Birmingham, and our co-producer and guardian angel, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks also to Casey Holford, Jonathan Dozer-Ezel, Will Coley, and Zachary Seltzer. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. A special thank you to Herb Donaldson's dear friend, Louise Swig, for her help with background information and photos. And a special thank you as well to Tim Wilson at the San Francisco Public Library for tracking down a couple of key photographs from the 1965 California Hall Ball that you'll find at makinggayhistory.com. I hope you've enjoyed hearing some of the people who are part of the Making Gay History archive. We have dozens more interviews, which you can listen to on our website, and we're working on a new season of episodes focusing on the Stonewall Uprising. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a single episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com. Thanks, Eric. Well, that wraps up our hour. We hope you've had an amazing Pride celebration today, and we look forward to sharing another Outbeat Extra with you in September. Tune in next Sunday night to Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. Support for Outbeat Radio and KRCB-FM comes from listeners and from Sonoma West Publishers, bringing you the Sonoma West Times and News, the Healdsburg Tribune, Cloverdale Reveille, and the Windsor Times, providing independent journalism and local community conversations in print and online at SonomaWest.com. Our community responded in many ways following the North Bay fires in 2017. One such effort was to unite local musicians as part of a benefit CD, Out of the Fire. Mark Rennick, also known as Muka, produced and performed on the compilation. We are habitual as people. We are kind of programmed to go through life. But when really good art comes along, and you know what I'm talking about, it lifts you from your habit, from how you hear or read or see art. I think the hearts have been melted as well as the fire melted things. I think a lot of hearts have been melted, period. 
The arts allow us to express our emotions, cope in times of difficulty, as well as inspire and support others. Presented by Creative Sonoma and Northern California Public Media. We are Radio 91 KRCB-FM Windsor and K215CQ Santa Rosa. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.